0: everybody, to episode five of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I'm the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And Andrew is here as well.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Andrew. I'm a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us again.
0: And this is May, so May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we're really excited about today's episode. Before we get started, just want to remind folks, um, if you or a loved one is experiencing a crisis related to suicide, there are resources available. You can reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can also reach out to the crisis text line by uh, texting the word HELP to 741-741. And if you are in Wisconsin and specifically the Milwaukee area, Mental Health America of Wisconsin has a warm line uh, where you would be connected with peers that have lived experience and living experience of mental health issues. That phone number is 414-777-4729. So, as I mentioned, today's episode is about mental health and suicide. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and mental health is obviously a big component of suicide and suicidal behavior. And for our guests for today's episode, we have Dr. Terry Turun Cassini. Terry is the executive director of the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She is also a clinical psychologist and faculty in the Department of Surgery, Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She is co-director of the Milwaukee Trauma Outcomes Project, as well as director of the clinical psychology program in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. So welcome, Terry. It's really a pleasure to have you today for our episode. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Andrew. I'm really excited
2: to be here um, and excited to contribute to this. So thank you.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. So there's something that we always ask people at the beginning of the episode, and that's what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about suicide?
2: Speaking purely clinically and, and have worked with patients who have contemplated suicide, the level of desperation that people get to sometimes with um, in, in contemplating suicide, it's really like individuals feel that it's truly the only option for them when they get close to that choice. And so um, that tunnel vision that they kind of get where they think this is what is the only option for them. Isn't necessarily what they see as a choice. They see it because they they get that tunnel vision. They um, it it truly is like the only path that they see for themselves. So it's it's really not a choice. It's where they they think the only place that they can go. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that I heard at a training once. um, Is that people who are suicidal are kind of ambivalent about dying, that they don't really want to die unnecessarily. And that, you know, the pain and the desperation that they're feeling is um, causing them to have kind of, like you said, Terry, this tunnel vision um, where they see this as, um, you know, an option, uh, a reasonable option. And so um, just to really appreciate you bringing that forward. Yeah. And a lot of suffering goes
2: in, in that contemplation, right? That pain that you talked about. So
0: So one of the things that I hear um, a lot as I am talking to folks about suicide, um, you know, going out and presenting in the community, having conversations with partners, folks are often curious and wondering about kind of what are some of the reasons that people die by suicide? Um, You know, obviously mental health is a big component and, and mental illness is a component of suicide, but it's not the only factor um, in suicidal behavior. Um, and there's some really, I think, thought-provoking theories out there about suicidal behavior. And one of those is um, probably the most prominent theory that's out in the field right now is Thomas Joyner's interpersonal psychological theory of suicidal behavior. Um, not to totally put you on the spot, Terry, but are you able to provide us with kind of an overview of that model and some of the components of that model? Yeah, I'd love to. And I just want to say that I was first introduced to
2: Dr. Joyner's model when I was a grad student. And actually, we were working with a researcher who was studying how this model might help us understand um, veterans and and suicide. And so it really, this model has stuck with me as I have continued to work with patients um, who have thought about suicide because I think it really fits clinically as well. And there's also good research evidence for it. So in Thomas Joyner's model, it's this, um, interpersonal theory of suicide where someone, um, it, he talks about, there's this, um, idea that there's a couple things that have to kind of occur and they can occur be, because of Um, how one might be feeling from a mood standpoint, but not necessarily all the time. As I know, I think you guys have talked about that on the podcast in previous episodes. So there's this um, sense of not belonging, right? So the sense of loneliness and not really belonging to others or belonging to a group. So he talks about it as low belongingness and then also co-occurring with a sense of burdensomeness on others. So, and it might not be that others perceive the individual to be a burden, but the individual, the important thing is the individual perceives themselves to be a burden on others. So, if you have this low belongingness and this high perceived burden on others, and you put that together, that can really increase risk for somebody contemplating suicide. And then when you add um, the capability for suicide on top of that, that's when one might be at the greatest risk. And that capability of suicide looks like um, a plan, but then access to means to carry out the plan. And then if someone has all three of those kind of, I almost see it as levels. So like those first two, and then they have access to means, um, then that is where someone is really high risk for suicide.
1: Yeah, definitely. And Terry, as you work clinically, it sounds like there are implications maybe at each of these levels um, of the three parts of the model. I'm curious like where your mind goes in terms of how we can intervene using this model. Like how could this guide your work clinically?
2: Absolutely. That's such a great question. So I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist by training. And so I can't help but if, if somebody is talking about suicidal intent, um, I, I will assess um, and they and, and it's natural for individuals to talk about burden on others. And so clinically I'll go there, right? And, and talk about, you know, if they acknowledge that they feel burdensome on others, um, I'll kind of start to challenge them as for the evidence of that, not just what they think others might be thinking of them, for example, or but what's the evidence that someone else perceives them to be burdensome on them and i can tell you so many times patients were like well no it's just like i get a sense you know and and so like helping them to see when we are feeling down it clouds how we perceive things and we perceive things more negatively so we are also going to attend to things that aren't maybe aren't accurate and but we are perceiving it that way because our mood is kind of um, I always talk about it as like a lens right we have now mood uh, negative mood glasses on and then we're going to see things through a different lens than if we were to take those glasses off and not feel down anymore mm-hmm. and then also so that's the cognitive piece that is all the perceived piece of joiner's model and then the low belongingness is really a behavioral piece, right? Of um, how are they connecting with others? Because when when we do feel down, what do we do? We like to isolate, which only guarantees that we will continue to feel down. And so when we feel connected with others, then that is going to help us with that sense of belonging, but it's hard to do that, again, when we have those negative mood mood glasses on. And so, you know, um, really engaging in behavioral activation and talking about this idea that um, in if we want our mood to change, then, um, then we have to give ourselves an opportunity to feel something different. So if we only continue to do what our negative mood tells us to do, then we're just going to continue to only guarantee ourselves that we're going to continue to feel down.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, minute. obviously,
2: clinically assessing you know means and plan and intent and making sure that we keep our patients safe depending upon what their plan and intent and means is so
1: yeah, yeah thanks
0: yeah I think too um this is so interesting and I've been I've been studying and looking at this model through the work that I do with um with farmers in particular and farmers suicide in Wisconsin. And it's it's been pretty, um, I guess, eye-opening to see how this model really can be transferable to a lot of different contexts like that. Um, you know, when we think about, um, you know, rural communities in isolation, for example, and that sense of thwarted belongingness and not really having an opportunity to, to interact with others, um, you know, I think from a prevention perspective... We think about, you know, how do we break the links between these different components of this of this theory of this model? You know, obviously with thwarted belongingness, like you said, Terry, it's really <clears throat> you know, looking for opportunities to engage. Um, and I also think that it's important to consider how others in the community, if they're concerned about somebody, you know, reaching in and providing, um, you know, perhaps helping to provide a sense of belongingness to folks. And so I'm curious from your perspective as a clinician and as someone that does a lot of research in this space, what are some of the other things that folks who are maybe observing, um, uh, you know, or, or feeling a sense of concern about somebody might be able to do to help kind of break the link between these different components of this theory?
2: Yeah, I think your point, Sarah, about connectedness is so important. And so offering to connect with others, I think is important. And I think one of the the aspects of that that goes a long way is not just doing it once, because the person who's feeling that thwarted belongingness might at first say no. (laughs) But continued offers and 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 not get derailed if the person isn't taking you up on those offers every time. And even, you know, I mean, I think we all can attest to this, especially after like the two years of isolation due to COVID, right, is even just a really good conversation with somebody that you run into for 10 or 15 minutes, I've had many of those where I leave and I'm like, oh my gosh, that felt so good. It felt so good to connect with that person on that level, just for ten minutes of conversation. And so, you know, not uh, those that are trying to reach others and reach out to others. I think not dismissing even those little moments of connection because that can change someone's sense of belonging or be feeling really feeling understood by somebody else in really a short amount of time.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people might not be up for a, a huge, right. Like conversation yeah. so being fluid about the way that that looks is, mm-hmm. it's a great point.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that the really impactful thing about what you said, Terry, is that, you know, you don't have to have special training necessarily to do that. I mean, you just really need to have a capacity and a willingness to just listen and be patient and reach out, um, you know, and I think. That's a way that you know, folks. You know that that don't have, you know, that aren't psychologists or aren't therapists. You know, can certainly um, you know help make our environment a little bit more welcoming and help folks feel belonged or feel like they belong. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk a little. Oh, go ahead.
1: I, I also just find myself wondering about kind of at a community level, you know, what we can do to build in, you know. A, mm-hmm. To facilitate a, a sense of belonging, you know, I wonder about identities also and just how that, that might play in. Some of the work that um, Mental Health America is doing with the group for queer youth just comes to mind as an example for youth that may not feel accepted or that they belong at home. Like having a space where they feel affirmed and like they belong can just be life saving, I think.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I think two things that come to mind. One, we I was with some colleagues yesterday and we were talking about just the impact that isolation during COVID is going to have years to come. And I think your point, Andrew, about, like, we really have an opportunity right now to be creative about how we generate a sense of community
1: mm-hmm.
2: that I think could really help to buffer against it, that sense of isolation. So I think that's one thing to think about. And then also, like, you know, Sarah, I think about the work that you do with farmers that you mentioned, but then also the work you do with veterans, and like we all have these particular identities, right? And and you know, as you mentioned with queer youth, Andrew, there are certain populations of individuals that feel marginalized, right? That facilitate that can really facilitate that sense of isolation and thwarted belongingness, and so thinking about. Um, how do we create positive community for different groups, um, is going to be really important, I think, as we move forward in this work.
1: Definitely.
0: And that kind of, I think, brings us to, um, some of the work that you do, Terry, in the community that I think is really fascinating and I wanted to hear a little bit more about today. Um, and that's the, the research that you and um, the other folks that are, the other, the other investigators that are part of the Milwaukee Trauma Outcomes Project. And that's the work that you do as it relates to the experience of trauma. Um, you know, living and, and working in the city of Milwaukee, obviously, we are aware of the trauma that's experienced in our community, whether it's trauma trauma. That's a result of interpersonal violence, but also the trauma of living in a place that is highly segregated, where there's institutional racism, where there's structural racism, you know, and and it, it impacts folks, not just in terms of their mental health, but their physical health. It impacts our bodies and our minds. And so I wonder, Terry, if you would be willing to maybe summarize some of the work that you do in this space. And then after that, we can spend some time talking about the intersection of mental health and trauma as they relate to suicide.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Yeah. For, it's been about nine years now, the Milwaukee trauma outcomes project is a group of researchers that collaborate on trying to understand after someone experiences traumatic injury, what do we know about either their experiences, their biology, their, how their brain processes, the emotions of what they went through that helps us to understand who might be emotionally and psychologically vulnerable after an injury event. And so we have a series of studies that we've either done or are ongoing. We have a new one now that's just starting up to help us kind of dive really deep into understanding different phenotypes, if you will, of risk that include both individual, biological, psychological factors, as well as Um, community level factors. Um, And it it might be that um, depending upon previous life experiences and how stressful those previous life experiences are and were, one's individual neurobiological factors might look different as a risk profile than somebody whose life maybe wasn't as stressful prior to the injury. It's not to say that the injury itself wasn't stressful, but if we're thinking about how people respond to trauma, we can't necessarily assume that everybody's neurobiology is the same because people have varying degrees of ongoing chronic stress. And so that's kind of where we're really starting to dive in now is looking at those populations that are the most burdened and stressed in society and saying, okay, what do we know about within group variability And how can we understand what factors might lead to distress, but also what are factors that are stress buffering? And it can help people maintain a sense of resilience after trauma.
1: I'm wondering, um, can you, I have two questions. For for folks that are listening that aren't familiar, can you tell us what you mean by phenotypes?
2: Yeah. Phenotypes just means um, what are the different factors that might be grouped together to help us understand who's at risk. So it could be a certain way someone thinks about how the trauma was or wasn't life-threatening in combination with certain biological variables that might create this grouping of variables or phenotype on the outside of an individual that might help us to understand risk. And the, the, the field for a long time was assuming, well, it's just one phenotype of risk. And I think some of the most novel work in the last five years has been done by colleagues that really challenged that notion to say, no, I mean, someone whose neurobiology, which is responsible for helping us respond to stress is going to look different when someone is chronically stressed, meaning they don't have resources that they need they don't have you know they they have food insecurity housing insecurity they might have high levels of community violence going on in their neighborhood so their stress system is activated differently than somebody who lives in a neighborhood where they feel safe they don't hear gunshots at night in their neighborhood and they have enough resources for food and they know every night where they're going to lay their head that that person's neurobiology might look very different and so if you take of those individuals and they experience a traumatic injury that moment that they experience trauma their neurobiological systems might actually respond differently mm-hmm. so that's where I think the field is trying to understand so I think it's a good question though phenotypes is kind of a very scientific <laughs> term that we use
1: yeah and then so I was also curious like when you say and I know as a collaborator in this work with you I know kind of some of the answer but I'm curious for our listeners, like. When you say stress, um, maybe the mind might go to like, you know, oh, I'm late for work. I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. Um, can you say like, and and you mentioned things like community violence and food insecurity, like, so is that part of how you're conceptualizing stress? Like, tell me, tell me more about that.
2: Right. And stress and trauma, you know, it's hard sometimes to disentangle them, but stress for sure is more resource related stress. But also um, sis, the, the stress that certain systems and structures in our society place on an individual, right? And so, um, for example, we're starting to dive into understanding at the neighborhood level and it's your your paper that you're working on, Andrew, you could probably describe it better than I can, but how... Um, resource deprivation at the neighborhood level is going to lead to outcomes for an individual after experiencing trauma. Um, And we've already started to dive, dive into that. And there's a new project that we're working on that we're trying to understand the structural racism that has taken place in our society and therefore the boundaries it's put around minoritized groups that also elevate daily life stress and, and, and then therefore leads to negative or, or a different path of health outcomes again, after trauma. So it's, it's challenging because as researchers, you know, someone experiences a traumatic event, we recruit them into a research study and then we do a deep dive into understanding, well, what was their life like before this trauma happened? And then we want to understand what pressures and stress they experience after that Mm -hmm. might elevate their risk for developing things like post-traumatic stress disorder or depression after trauma. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And Sarah and, and Terry too, I'm, I'm, as we're talking about this, it strikes me, you know, it just crossed my mind, like, okay, someone who's facing a lot of those stressors on these different levels, like, how does suicide play in there? Like, if I'm in a suicidal crisis and I don't have my basic needs met, I think a lot of the dialogue around suicide and the way we think about, we'll call the hotline, or you know, it just doesn't even scratch the surface in terms of addressing that. What I'm curious for your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, you're speaking my language, and I think we must share a brain because I was—that's where I was going with this too. I mean, a lot of the. Um, I think our conceptualizations of suicide and even our treatments and our responses to suicide are very individual based. Um, You know, we talk about, for example, um, you know, uh, limiting access to lethal means, which is a very individual level intervention. Um, And in a state like Wisconsin, where firearm access is highly politicized, that can be a difficult proposition. And so my response is how do we create environments um, and contexts where people don't get to the point where they are feeling like they you know, want to take their own life and then have access to a firearm. And so I think a lot of the suicide prevention work that I'm interested in and Terry to the point of the work that you're doing is, you know, looking at the impacts of these policy systems, structure level issues like food insecurity, like um, systemic racism, how they impact suicidal behavior in our communities. Um, There has been some recent research that has shown Suicide rates in the general population are decreasing, but we're unfortunately seeing increases in communities that are experiencing a lot of this um, stress and trauma at the community and at at the societal level. And so I think that plays into the health disparities that we're seeing in terms of suicide when it comes to folks specifically in black and brown communities, but marginalized folks overall. Um, And so I think from my perspective, that's how this all kind of relates to suicide, but definitely I'm curious to hear what you both think as well.
2: Yeah, I totally agree, Sarah. And I think that, again, I keep bringing up COVID, but particularly since COVID, we've seen, particularly in urban communities... Which groups have been most burdened? And then I think this trend, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, the trend that certain minoritized groups have been experiencing an increase in suicide even started before COVID. And yeah, and my concern is how is that now that COVID has happened and, and COVID is particularly affecting low resourced communities,
0: mm-hmm.
2: are we, is that going to accelerate this risk? Right. And and so, you know, means access to means and what policies can we put in place to reduce just to have safe, safe use of means. Right. And make sure that people are safe so that in a moment of crisis, they are not reaching to use those means. But then also like I mentioned before, when I talked about Joiner's model, like there's these, I see it as two levels. I don't know if he does, but I see it as like this perceived burdensomeness and low belongingness, this thwarted belongingness. And then if those are in place, then it, and then that accelerates to this next level of planning and then thinking about access to means. If we can address also this perceived burdensomeness and thwarted belongingness, it's almost like a more of a um, primary prevention before it gets to it's like primary prevention a (laughs) and then and then access to means is like primary prevention b Mm -hmm. right and so i think both of those are extremely important
1: i see a a publication like (laughs) maybe we always end up with more work after these
2: oh you guys didn't tell me that when you invited me
1: (laughs) and I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit here but it just I mean it really I I think if you google suicide prevention and maybe look at the top 10, you know, things that come back um in my experience they've been they're pretty tone deaf when it comes to these structural and like systemic factors like racism and um socioeconomic uh strain and so Um, You know, I I did a, uh, I've done a training with some colleagues on uh, suicide uh, assessment in clinical settings and prevention in clinical settings. And my colleagues who are both women of color talk about suicide prevention um, in in black and brown communities that anti-racism is suicide prevention. And, And it just really... Uh, you know, like minim- having a, a livable minimum wage and having rent assistance programs, like all of those things are suicide prevention. And I think when I'm sitting across someone in an office who's in a suicidal crisis, when they're saying, I can't pay my rent, I'm not safe at home, like those are going to be the most challenging situations clinically.
2: And and you bring up such a good point, Andrew. And it's this is where it goes back to what leads individuals to thoughts about suicide isn't necessarily always a mental health issue. It's an issue of, of being able to survive on a daily basis, right? It's an issue of having um, our, if we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like our basic needs met, because if you look at his theory, it's, it's if you have your basic needs met is when you can become eventually fully actualized, And, you know, I can't, you know, for some individuals, if, if they don't have a sense of safety from a hunger, you know, hunger standpoint, a housing standpoint, um, just a general sense of safety in their community or in their home, um, getting to the next level of what they can achieve as individuals, it's, they can't get there, you know, and it's, it's just going to be we really need to think about addressing these social determinants of health as prevention, um, and and that's so important.
1: Totally and you perfect. both are smiling. You. So. so I had I had messaged Sarah and I said, "Okay, your turn for the next question." Then I was like, "Okay, wait, one one more quick point."
0: Um, All of the things that happen behind the scenes.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, Terry, yes, and what you said about you know, getting there, like, and it's no wonder they can't get there, right? Their cards are stacked against them. Yet we keep sending this individual message, like, oh, we need to treat your depression. Right. And it's like, yes, let's do that. And like, we need to not deliver the message that someone should be at the top of this hierarchy of needs when the foundation of the hierarchy has been pulled out from under them.
0: So I just love that
1: visual, Terry.
2: Yeah, and and think about our trauma patients, right, Andrew? I mean, when we see them, we want to go in and we want to be like, we want to help you from a a psychological standpoint. But our patients might say to us, "Look, I I just totaled my car in this crash when this this other car hit me. I I how am I? A patient sometimes might be like, "How am I going to get to work? Because that was my only access to get to work, and now I'm going to lose my job and." And so if we start to push upon them, no, actually right now you need to be addressing the flashbacks that you're having or the nightmares that you're having. They're saying my primary need right now is to make sure that I have transportation. Then if we are missing each other and we're not addressing what an individual's needs are, helping them to figure that out or getting them connected with the right people that can, then... That they're not going to be at a place where they can fully address their mental health. Right. And I also want to say too, that I like, there are times in my life that I've certainly been overwhelmed and certainly have been um, under a significant amount of stress. And I can say that there are times I, th- I would say over the last two years, that's happened the most intensely out of my entire life. It's been a struggle with COVID for lots of individuals. And yet, I, I am a privileged individual i i have um, white privilege and i have safety and i have access to um, obviously safe housing and food I don't have food insecurity so when you think about what you have on a daily basis and you know what it can feel like to be overwhelmed and then you add on top of that you don't have your basic needs met I think you know as individuals we need to think about as we, as we try to understand the experiences of others, and you know, it, it's it, it's so um, overwhelming. I can only imagine for individuals when they don't have those basic needs
0: met. Yeah, and I think you know, from a prevention perspective, um, you know, the um, prospect of um, you know helping folks with finding with meeting their basic needs, whether that is transportation related, food related, housing related, um, you know, childcare related, Mm -hmm. it seems like a much heavier lift um, than, you know, and I think the, I think the other important point too, is that we're not saying that those individual level strategies aren't important because certainly they are. Um, But I think using kind of the social ecological model to think about, um, individual interpersonal community and society level um, interventions and risk factors and um, protective factors as well. Um, when we're thinking about that and, and we think about individual versus you know systems and policy change, if we impact policy, if we impact systems, there are going to be so many more individuals that then are perhaps prevented from dying by suicide. And attempting suicide and having suicidal ideation, um, you know, thinking about suicide kind of as the tip of the iceberg and all of the other outcomes below the surface that we may not talk about quite as much. So, you know, I think prevention is, needs to span that spectrum of interpersonal all the way up through policy and systems change um, so that we can have the most impact in terms of suicide in our community hundred percent.
2: I think we're up to our third model that we've discussed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I massive. <laughs> You're steeping theory <laughs> <buried> over here. <laughs> steeping. We're steeping theory. I also want to say that um in in my more junior years as a clinical psychologist, I worked with some adolescents on um in, in obesity and helping um adolescents um, and with weight loss, right. And, and helping to make healthy choices for themselves, um, to improve their health. And, um, I remember sitting down and talking with them, the parents of one of the, the kids that I was working with. And, um, I think this fits in the sense of when you're talking about the different layers of, of society and as the individual and, um, you know, you're, you work with your child and you say, okay, we need to eat, make different choices about what we're eating. Let's think about a balanced meals and reaching for that fruit instead of that, you know, processed food snack or, or whatever. And then, you know, when I was talking with these parents, it's, I said, you know, like, it's like, you know, you want your child to make better choices, but if you don't change what's going on around them and, and what they have access to for healthy choices for food, then they're, they're only going to just continue the same um, things because that's all that they have around them, and I think it's the same thing when we when we put it in the context of the socio-ecological model that individuals can certainly make change and certainly have agency to do that, but also if we don't if we don't change the structures that's around them. Um, Then if they make change, but they're going to still be hitting the same walls because those structures haven't changed, um, it's going to be more and more difficult for them, um, to get to a place where they feel that sense of getting closer to being self-actualized and feeling moving away from that despair that they might be experiencing.
0: Right. And bringing it back to, you know, mental health month, mental health awareness month, um, You know, are there any, you know, from a clinical perspective, I guess, any big P, small P policies or systems changes that we could make from a mental health perspective to better support individuals that are dealing with, you know, all of these issues, plus maybe a clinical diagnosis or maybe an undiagnosed mental health issue, Um, you know, how can policies and systems maybe better support those folks?
2: I think from a small P standpoint, but I, that I think is really important is, um, I think we need to have our providers in healthcare feeling comfortable assessing for suicide. Um, I think that's vital to, um, and, and that just goes with training, right? I think it's vital to the health of individuals, um, and not only doing it, but doing it in a way that's culturally sensitive. And, you know, Sarah, this goes back, I think, you know, to the work, your work that we've talked about related to understanding the differences for our Black and Brown youth and what, what is unique about their experiences that might lead to a different kind of assessment than someone else's um, that might be from a different background. Um, And I think, I think in healthcare, we have a, a serious opportunity to make a significant impact Because if your provider is saying to you, um, you know, have you been feeling down? If so, have you gotten to the point where you've thought about harming yourself or ending your own life? When someone who has those thoughts can feel that those thoughts in and of themselves can be isolating and scary to verbalize and also scary to identify who to share those with those thoughts. And so if a provider is saying that and asking that, that can help to normalize that and also open up this huge door for conversation to get that person access to resources and intervention and as needed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There was a really wonderful speaker. I was just at the American Association of Suicidology Conference last week, and there was a really wonderful speaker who was talking about that exact thing about the screening that's used, when it's used, how it's used, and even the words we're asking. Um, On those screening tools and what's relevant. And so I really appreciate you highlighting that, Terry. Um, I think it's really important. And I think the more that we can get folks um, aware of not just warning signs, but, you know, the more that we can get folks thinking about kind of the whole picture and the context that folks are living in on a daily basis um, we might get a little bit closer to being able to intervene before somebody gets to the point of a crisis. So thank you.
2: yeah. And also, I would just say it's it's not it's making sure screening is super important, but it's also making sure that um, I, I my preference would be that screening happens with a live person, not just clicking a couple boxes on some sort of electronic automated screen. Um, because I think also the way you ask is so important and that obviously cannot be conveyed electronically
1: totally. um,
2: because you can ask in a way that, that invites conversation and openness and empathy and understanding that, you know, a quick questionnaire can't. Um, so, and I know that's a challenge for healthcare systems, right? Because having the personnel and the time to ask questions of our patients to see truly how they're doing and what's affecting them in the moment, you know, it's a challenge for healthcare systems, but I also think it's an opportunity.
0: Well, and I think that's another opportunity for policy change, right? Small P policy in terms of funding and, you know, funding allocation, um, you know, I think... Thinking about that at a systems level is really important, and making sure that we can do that—you um, know—that um, there are folks available and that they're supported through funding to to do that kind of screening. Um, and then I think also to make sure then that you know if the screen is positive, you know, what are what are those next steps? How is somebody being cared for and supported and followed throughout their interactions and even after they leave the healthcare setting? Um, you know, how is the community? Wrapping around those folks to make sure that they feel that they don't feel that thwarted belongingness um, and that they, you know, um, you know, maybe don't get to the point where they're feeling like they want to take their life.
1: Mm -hmm. Sarah, can I ask you for our listeners that aren't familiar with that, uh, the language, um, big P and small P. Yep. Can you just explain what you mean by that?
0: Big P policy is legislation. Um, What we think about in terms of like, you know, federal policy, state policy, local policy, small P policy is organizational. So organizations that we operate within on an everyday basis, whether it's schools or employers, um, other um, organizations that are similar, healthcare organizations have policies and procedures that structure the way that they operate. And so when we think about prevention, we can intervene at the big P policy level, the legislative policy level, and also the organizational policy level. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up all of the questions that we had today for Terry. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us um, and your amazing work that you're doing, your research. It's so appreciated.
2: Thanks. And thank you, too, for doing this podcast. It's amazing. Um, and
0: I love listening to it. So thanks yeah. for having me. I feel really honored to be a guest. We're honored to have you. So thank you. Andrew, do you have any parting thoughts?
1: Just uh, kind of zooming out, right, for for folks. I think every, um, every episode at the end of it, I feel like, wow, that might be my favorite episode, but I'm really feeling <laughs> that this time. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just we really you know covered uh a lot today one big thing being uh kind of this interpersonal theory of suicide and that we need to think about um belongingness um and burdensomeness in addition to folks having capacity or means and then really in relation to Dr. Doreen Cassini's work looking at some of the uh, systemic stressors that impact uh, outcomes of trauma survivors or survivors of traumatic injury, ways that suicide prevention needs to kind of expand to be this multidimensional approach across le- layers of the social ecological model um, and, and in relation to kind of this idea of this Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like helping, how can we help people really reach the self-actualization? Um And so, just again, really want to thank you, Terry, for being here today and um, Sarah for your wonderful facilitation of the episode.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, folks, for listening. Just a reminder um, if you have um, any concerns about yourself or somebody else, to reach out to the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. 800-273-8255 or the crisis text line, text the word talk to 741-741. Our next episode, which will be coming up in June, is going to have a discussion around postvention, which is um, support for folks that have experienced a suicide loss. We'll have a great guest for that episode. And we hope that you have a wonderful rest of your May. Hopefully spring will come soon. And thanks for listening.